Today's podcast is with the mad scientist, Chris Duffin. Chris is a guy that I've been following for years in the strength community. Uh, he is doing some really cool shit outside of strength. He also has an incredible backstory, which he goes into really deep detail in his book, The Eagle and the Dragon. Um, just a phenomenal podcast. We had to do this one on Zencaster because he's out in Portland, and I'm traveling less with uh, the ceremony of pregnancy going on right now. But um, still a great podcast. We dive deep into his book, his backstory, what he's doing in business, and uh, which records he's planning to break in strength at the end of this podcast, which will blow your mind. And you can follow all that March 19th. So we moved this one up ahead of some of the other podcasts coming out. Lo siento if you've been waiting to hear your own podcast, but um, this one's great. Check it out. Also, visit kingsboo.com, leave me your email address, and I will send you one, only one newsletter per month with everything that I'm into. I know I'm off social media, so it's a great way we can stay connected. And of course, we've got the inner circle there. So if you want to work with me privately, one-on-one, we can start the coaching process there. Outside of that, we've got some great sponsors today on the show. Today's episode is brought to you by Ancestral Supplements. It is absolutely phenomenal what these guys are doing. They're doing grass-fed kidney. And Ancestral Supplements makes New Zealand-sourced nose-to-tail organ meats, bone marrow, and kidney in simple, convenient gelatin capsules. There's an old Comanche narrative that has been told and retold for generations about a young man who loved his wife so much that when she died, he fed her the fresh kidney of a buffalo, and then she came back to life. This tale has remained with the Comanche people to serve a greater purpose, to pass on the wisdom of feeding the kidney to those who are ailing. There are many accounts of our ancestors taking an animal the young and the warriors favored the liver, heart, and while the ailing, frail, and old received kidney to rebuild strength, immunity, and vitality. Kidney provided concentrated amounts of kidney-specific proteins, B12, selenium, and DAO that are now absent from the modern diet. This nourishment is known to support kidney, urinary, thyroid, and histamine health. Visit ancestralsupplements.com to see what they can do for you. Ancestral supplements putting back in what the modern world has left out. These guys are phenomenal. I don't know if you've ever tried kidney. It doesn't taste great. So this is for sure my preferred method of getting it into my body. Uh, the supplement is one that you feel. It's absolutely incredible. It works very well. And you can get 10% off everything in their store by visiting ancestralsupplements.com and using code word KING10 at checkout. But you got to use their Shopify, KING10 through their Shopify, and you'll get the discount. This episode is also brought to you by Sated Keto Meal Shakes. They make it easy to stay keto when you're busy or don't have time to cook, or just low carb in general, which I am most of the year. They're delicious and convenient on the go. Comes in two ready-to-drink flavors, chocolate and vanilla, with less than two grams of net carbs per meal and no added sugar. It's got MCTs, omega-3s, prebiotic fiber, so you don't get the shits, 27 vitamins and minerals to give you everything you need throughout your day. Go to sated.com slash Kyle and use code word Kyle at checkout for 20% off store-wide. That's S-A-T-E-D.com slash K-Y-L-E. Code word Kyle, 20% off. We're also brought to you by AMP. AMP is making some really cool products right now. AMP Human has their brand new PR lotion, which they have completely redone. The kit includes one bottle and five on-the-go packets, which combined support 20 to 25 workouts plus free domestic shipping. PR Lotion is the only high-tech sports lotion that unlocks the natural electrolyte bicarb. It is used by athletes at every level to reach training goals faster. Next-gen PR Lotion has the new and improved texture that dries faster and goes on smoother than the original PR Lotion, which I absolutely love. 
Amp Human is creating a new category of tools to conquer the limitations of the human body. Its groundbreaking absorption technology allows vital nutrients to bypass the GI system and be delivered directly through the skin, which means you're not going to shit your pants like I've done in the past in big races. PR Lotion is the flagship product that delivers sodium bicarb and natural electrolyte safely through the skin. Bicarb buffers acid that builds up in the muscles during exercise, allowing you to train harder and recover faster. Go to amphuman.com slash Kyle. That's A-M-P-H-U-M-A-N.com slash Kyle. And you're going to get 20% off. So just add Kyle20 at checkout for 20% off. Last but not least, we're brought to you by OneFarm.com. And these guys are a single origin USDA hemp company that's making the best CBD on the planet. If you think about the best coffee, it's always single origin organic. The best wine, single origin organic and the best coffee, and the best CBD is no different. They've got all sorts of cool products coming out. They have their face serum and different beauty products that are about to hit the market, I think, this week or next, so be on the lookout for that. And of course, my favorite tinctures of all time, from cinnamon flavor to lemon to unflavored, very high-end stuff, and it's full spectrum, so you get all of the cannabinoids and all of the terpenes you'll find. We just did an episode with Dr. Mike Hart talking a bit about the full profile of what you can get out of cannabis, and it's phenomenal. So check that out at onefarm.com slash Kyle, and you're going to get 15% off everything in the store. Thank you guys for tuning in, and enjoy the show. All right, we're rocking and rolling. Chris Duffin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Looking forward to chatting, my friend. This is the uh, the first time I've done a, a Zencaster interview in, in probably a year. Well, dang, sorry. Uh, sorry, I couldn't get down to uh, to do something locally, but uh, travel right now is pretty challenging for me. Yeah, I get it. And uh, my wife's pregnant right now with our second one, so I'm trying to travel less myself. Well, congratulations on that, man. Yeah, thank you, brother. You got any kids? I got three of them. Oh, there you go. <laughs> you're you're <laughs> in the throes. You're in the thick yep. of it. Yep. How old are they? Uh, they are 11, 7, and 2. Oh, wow. That's good spacing. It, it is a good spread. Very cool. Well, you sent me out your book, uh, The Eagle and the Dragon, which is phenomenal. I've been diving into it. Um, not quite finished with it yet, so definitely want to want to dive into that. Um, I think I've, I've kind of run in similar circles as you. Obviously, I'm not a power lifter, but um, uh, you know, friends in the community like Mark Bell, Jesse Burdick, I've heard your name quite a bit. Um, coming up as somebody that'd be great for the podcast. So I'm happy that you're here with us today. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's, uh, let's dive in like we do with everybody. Tell us about growing up. I know you've got quite a few stories you can get into. Uh, you grew up in a very particular part of, uh, California, which is funny for, for most people who experience California, they think of the Bay area, Silicon Valley or Southern California, LA, Anaheim, uh, San Diego, that kind of stuff, Disneyland. And, you know, where you grew up was, um, you know, I guess people, it, it's even different from NorCal. It's, it is NorCal, but it's not the Bay. It's its own it, it, world. It's, it, it's still different. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's actually, they call it the state of Jefferson somewhere up there. They start this, uh, you know, they've been trying to succeed since like, I don't know, 60 years ago, but yeah, it's a different country. It's, it's remote, it's wild. And, um, and, uh, yeah, so I started, you know, growing up, uh, actually not too far out of the Bay Area, uh, just north of that in uh, in Sonoma County, and my my parents they were like super intelligent, 
well read. My mom was going to school to be a chemical engineer. You know, my dad was a member of Mensa and uh, just, but my mom did not want to be like a part of society today. Now, given this is like, you know, mid seventies and they're kind of in this, you know, (laughs) uh, hippie mentality coming out of the sixties and still kind of living that definitely in that, that area. Right. And so that's exactly what my mom decided to do. And we, as a very young age, ended up living in the mountains. And my mom just wanted to create a lifestyle separate from, you know, the current world um, society. And she had her reasons for that. But it, uh, it, I I lived a very, when I say poor, it's not like when you see, you know, poor people today where, you know, they still have, you know, a, a, a smartphone, uh, you know, maybe a, the, the kids still have a gaming system, whatever it is. But like, this is a family. So it was a family of seven living in the mountains on less than $5,000 a year. That means, Damn. you know, like my, if I had shoes, my toes were sticking out the side. We were, you know, we lived in tents. We lived in condemned homes or buildings. Uh, we lived in just absolute poverty. We're talking like if I wanted to take a bath, there was times of you got to go down to the stream with a jug of water and fill it, take it up, sit it on a rock in the sun all day long, and then you could dump it over your over your head to to bathe yourself. And uh, one of the, one of the striking stories, kind of start the book with it, is uh, around at six years old. We were living, you know, in the mountains. And there was a lot of rattlesnake dens around. So our bedding, we had beams lashed into the trees. And that's where we slept at night is climbing up there and these makeshift uh, uh, tree forts, essentially. And the rattlesnakes were all over the place. So I was being taught at six years old how to catch a live rattlesnake with my hands, (laughs) how to hold it and kill it. And you're sitting there like staring, like literally staring death down the throat, because if if you don't know what to do, you freak out, you make any mistake, you are going to die. And but I had to learn those skills because that is the environment that I lived in. Now, kind of tied to that is there's the other side of the environment, and that's the human environment. And people that are like living in the woods or outside of, you know, society or trying to hide, usually there's a reason. (laughs) So there's a lot of stories of dealing with, uh, had to deal with murderers, had to deal with a serial killer, human trafficking. Um, Me and my siblings were taken by the state for a while, obviously, uh, for, you know, the conditions that we are living in. And that is, that's, that's what my early childhood life was like. Um, and this is, uh, and, and, and kind of, this is the first half of the book. It's, I, I call it the Eagle because I literally have two giant Eagles tattooed on me, one across my, my stomach and one across my back. And I had this done at 20 years old and each Eagle has a shackle on its ankle and it's that shackle kind of winds down and wraps and then uh, connects to my ankle. And there's a shackle there. And the meaning behind it is you're not a product. You're not defined 
by your environment or the things that happen to you. But really, you can you can take and fly to whatever heights you want in life. The, at the end of the day, the only thing holding you back is yourself. And so that first half of the book is really about separating one's identity from those things that happen to us. And, and we see this happen a lot in society today where people, you ask them who they are and they'll tell you, well, this is the way I am because my parents were alcoholics or, hey, I'm the, going to the gym and it's like, I'm the guy with a bad back. I, I can't do certain things and I'm going to be like this. I'm going to be in pain the rest of my life. Like, And you see people creating these definitions and defining themselves by things that are outside of their control. And yeah, I'm not, those things are going to have an influence on you. If you've had some traumatic events in your life, I've certainly had them myself. Uh, it's going to influence you. But at the end of the day, the definition of oneself is not what happened to you, but your responses and your actions to those events. So we take this uh, story of my youth a little bit further, and that's exactly kind of what I started doing. So I uh, ended up in Karis State for a while. Parents ended up getting us back. We ended up in Eastern Oregon, desert country, desert and mountains. Uh, my parents in Northern California, you can kind of guess we were living in the mountains because my mom was growing commercial weed for a living or attempting to uh, when not getting busted by the, <laughs> by the police because uh, it was Ill quite illegal then, uh, not so much now, but, um, and, and, uh, decided to stay out of the drug trade when we got to Oregon because they didn't want to lose uh, the kids again, but we were you know, doing, you know, logging, mining, things of like that nature that could get us out and away from everything. You know, I'd be in some like remote Eastern Oregon school with like three kids in my class. Damn. But I started grow, you know, getting getting a little older and taking kind of responsibility for myself, getting involved in athletics and academics. And by the time you know I got through to, to high school, uh, we were living in a little bit larger community. And my stepfather, who was the father of my three sisters and uh, the man that raised me, he won a disability settlement and was able to put a little bit of money down on a, a mobile home. So I had a stable place to live all through high school. Now, when I say mobile home, people probably have a little bit of a misconception of what that is. Uh, this one didn't have doors on the inside. The windows barely closed. There was no kitchen. We had to frame up some, some two-by-fours and throw some fixtures in. And for just to give an example, the, the fire department burnt it down when we moved out because it was unlivable. But for us, it was pretty amazing. We had, you know, running water, electricity, <laughs> bedrooms, like, and a state and some stability through uh, through high school. But uh, I was working through high school, you know, trying to come up with extra money for the family, but involved in uh, uh, athletics and uh, and and school. Obviously, ended up graduating as valedictorian and a state level athlete, and had my choice of where to go for school. And ended up picking just a straight academic school because that was the best. I got a full ride scholarship. And so I, I took off to go to school and things got rapidly worse at home. 
And I wasn't communicating at home much because anytime I'd call home, even though I was at school, you know, I was working and had income, I would have to, you know, kick money back to the family. And uh, I was trying to honestly avoid that and just kind of figure myself out at the time. Those things that you do when you're of college age, right? Yeah. And uh, like I said, things got worse. I ended up having to take custody of my, my, my three sisters one at a time and start raising each of them uh, through their teenage years into adulthood, which I, which I did while I finished my degrees and was starting my career, working on my MBA, all those sorts of things I had. I had my sisters in the background that I was taking care of and getting them kind of motivated and pointed in the right direction so that they could uh, get moving with their life in a, in, in a positive fashion. And that is kind of that, that first half of the book kind of culminating later as I achieve what we would call the American dream, right? I'm living in a house with a white picket fence. I've got a couple kids. By this point, I'm an exec. I advanced my career to an executive level. So I was, I was doing like coming in and doing like company turnarounds for aerospace companies, uh, automotive manufacturing, high tech. I'd come in, either fix like a division of a company or get it prepped and ready and sold. And so I was, I was pretty well sought after for what I did. And uh, it's, it's a pretty broad scope, like, you know, going from living homeless, growing up homeless with like absolutely nothing, uh, not being the best at, you know, social interactions and all those things because of my limited, you know, interaction with uh, most of society growing up to now becoming this, you know, corporate executive leader, um, you know, living my life and uh, doing all these things. It, it, it was, it's a, it's a pretty big shift kind of walking from one space to the other. And that's yeah, the no first, doubt. that's the first half of the book. Let's unpack some of that. I know. Um, oh yeah. I lifted weights of- and all that somewhere in there too. <laughs> I forget. I always forget about that. <laughs> you started getting strong. No doubt about it. I started it. getting strong. Yeah. Um, Talk about, I mean, if you, if you will, I know it's, I know it's hard and you, you express yourself, uh, pretty vulnerably in your book, but talk about, you know, what, what exactly was going on where you had to take your sisters and raise them yourself. Yeah, there's, there's a, a few pieces I can't really get into, um, because of the you know, depth of some things, but my mother ended up having a mental breakdown and she took off to Montana and my stepfather had been in a, a mental decline for a number of years. He was, I'll put it bluntly, batshit crazy. So, for example, one of my sisters was 13 years old. This is Central Oregon. There's over a foot of ground on the snow in the winter. He kicks her out with no resources, no, you know, nothing besides the clothes on her back to, to go figure things out because he thought she stole his favorite cereal bowl. Wow. And, and so my, my, my siblings and basically ended up living on the streets and not good things because trying to figure out how to, how to do that as a, a teen or a preteen is, uh, is a little challenging. And that's where I had to take a step in. Um, so the, the oldest I took custody of immediately um, because that was the, the, the example I, I just gave there, the, uh, uh, my youngest sister 
actually had a, a friend's house that she had gone and was starting to ha, was staying there and wanted to wanted to continue living there. The state didn't know, thought he was still, you know, had her. So it was all, I guess, legal. And then my middle sister was actually in juvie at the time. So I raised my oldest sister in uh, this town called Klamath Falls, where I went to where I'd gone to college. And it was I was 21 years old, I think, when I when I adopted her. But for 21 years old, I was fairly mature. We'll say I owned my own house. I owned my own business that I run on the weekends. I was working as a manager in a window and door uh, manufacturing facility. I had a uh, hundred employees with three supervisors working under me, uh, managing this, uh, uh, you know, a third of this really large manufacturing plant. And so I took her in. And then as soon as my second sister got out of juvie, I took custody of, of her as well. And then a couple years after that, um, well, when my, my father passed away and then the year following, my stepfather passed away. And so as soon as he passed away, my youngest sister either was going to become a ward of the state, even though she had this family that was taking care of her, there was no longer that uh, smoke screen. So that's when I ended up taking custody of, of, of her as well and raising her through, you know, that 15 to 19 year time frame of uh you know, of, uh, of childhood or early adulthood. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a lot. I mean, there's, there's no doubt. I mean, right from the opening pages of your book, I think it's a very clear, yet the reader has a very clear understanding. This is not how most people were brought up. Um, but talk about, I guess, some of these, you know, what there's a reframe that, that people can use, um, I've brought it up on this podcast before with one of my teachers, Anahata, who who does a conscious relationships workshop, and she has you look back at your greatest teachers, and your greatest teachers are often the people who taught you not just the best things in life on how to live and what to do correctly, but the things to not do, and that becomes your greatest teacher as you reframe uh, everything that you learn from them, you witness them as a teacher, not just something, some shit that happened to you. Yeah. Um, I guess unpack some of the themes that you go over because you talk about fear really early on. And, and I think it was your stepfather that taught you how to deal with rattlesnakes. Um, I know we spoke about it briefly, you know, here today, but what are the, you know, how do these themes impact you? Cause at six years old, you know, because of your environment, you're now starting to witness the world in a different way that some people don't get to their, in their entire lives. Yeah. So I, that's something I I really tried to focus on this book. I didn't want it to be a book about me. I wanted it to be a book that people could use the lessons and themes and what I learned in this broad scope of life. And we haven't covered all of it yet, by the way. So we've only covered half of it. There's a lot more to this to the story uh, yet to yet to come. But <clears throat> um, yet. Yeah overcoming fear and not just overcoming fear, but using it appropriately. So I, I did have a lot of introspection, I guess, through my life. And every chapter in the book is wrapped around these themes. And, and uh, yeah, one of the big powerful themes of that first half of the book is, is, is fear and being able to manage and control it. So for the, for the snake, you know, I've got this snake in my hand and you can't just be like fear can be a powerful thing, but it can that can be a, a useful force. And it could also be really detrimental if we don't handle it well. So overcoming fear doesn't mean like not being fearless. Being fearless leads to recklessness. Uh, 
the way, the best way to overcome fear is to, is one to, to practice and adapt, adapt to it. So in incremental steps, just like when we go to the gym, you don't just walk into the gym and squat 500 pounds. Like you've got to build your tolerance for those types of things. And the other side of it is having a plan, like knowing specifically what I'm going to do in this situation, how I'm going to handle it, those things that are going to give you that confidence and control. And that's exactly what I had to do, you know, with this snake in my hand is I knew exactly how to manage it. I knew how to control it. And while, you know, my heart may be beating in my chest, I could manage this and safely the best way to actually handle this snake is, 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 is to be in that state and not in this fearless state, but also not letting fear overcome oneself. And a, a bigger picture in life is more about like fear and stress. So a lot of times as humans, we're seeking this point of, of comfort and I, I, I mentioned, you know, coming into the gym and squatting 500 pounds. So let's, let's, let's take this like lifting, lifting weights, for example, uh, lifting weights is a physical stressor to the body. And when we stress ourselves, this is the human condition. We adapt to that and we come stronger and better versions of ourselves. So the same thing happens with those other areas of strength in our life mental, emotional, or even spiritual. If we lack exposure, we're going to get what happens if we quit going to the gym. We start getting soft. We start the process of atrophy, which is a longward downward spiral towards leading towards death at some point, right? I'm over exaggerating, but I'm not. This is this is fact. So so my you know, my thesis is essentially you need to have fear in your life. You need to be in the practice of finding those things that twist up in your gut and give you that, that, that anxiety, that fear also mixed with excitement. And th that is, that's your signal. That's your signal to not avoid it, to not run away from it, but to turn directly towards it and move in that direction because that is going to allow you the greatest opportunity for growth, which is the greatest opportunity for life. And so it's not just understanding that these negative things that could happen in your life maybe aren't necessarily bad, but also that at some point we need to actually purposely find and chase those things if we've come to that chair of comfort and we're sitting there and we don't have that in our life right now. And it could be anything. Um, you know, it's very early, you know, uh, we're both a bit older, but, you know, think back when you're younger and you're like, you know, out there trying to find a relationship and it's like this mixture, you see this, you know, that person that becomes your partner. And, you know, initially as you start progressing in that relationship, you, you've got anxiety, you've got fear, but you've got excitement too. And you've got that mixture. This is, this is what drives you forward and creates like beautiful things in your life. It could be this job that you're scared of. It could be a big project that uh, is coming at work that they don't know who it's going to go to. It, it could be any sort of thing. It could be going back to school or getting out and chasing your, your true you know, business idea or some project that you want to do. And 
that is such an important lesson that I think gets lost because we live in this world of, you know, curated and cultivated comfort at our fingertips every day. We're consumers of comfort and content and not really driving ourselves and our life and pushing ourselves forward, finding that gap of fear and unknown in your life and stepping right into it. Sorry, yeah, I went on a little bit of a tangent there. No, I love it. But- I love it. it. It reminds me of the Native American wisdom of the buffalo. You know, when the storm comes, they they all group together and go head first into the storm because they know it's the fastest way through it, as opposed to trying out to outrun the storm. And it, it exactly. seems like from a, from a young age, you've been going head on into that, which is certainly uh, a different a different way of living than most. Yeah, and I, that is, you know, that's a good time frame to kind of to shift because I I, I I hit the conclusion of the first half of the book, right, which was me living that American dream. And I'm sitting there and yeah, I had challenging work doing what I was doing, but Every day, I felt like taking an ice pick and stabbing myself in the eye. I was bored out of my mind. And I was sitting around. I'm like, look at this. I finally proved everyone that this, 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 this mountain man from the sticks could become a, a successful you know, member, contributive member of society. And I, and I looked around, and I go, but whose dream was this? Was this mine? Is this where I want to be? And that's when I started the second path, the second half of the book, uh, which is also defined in another tattoo, <laughs> which is uh, uh, the first one. It's one tattoo. It took me like 40 hours, covers, you know, most of my, 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 my right leg and my, 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 uh, my, my torso front and back. And the second one is another 40 hour tattoo and it's just a dragon this giant Ouroboros and the face covers my chest and it wraps around my shoulders and my back and my arms and inside my arms and comes back around and its tail is sitting in its own mouth and he's devouring his tail. And that sounds a bit macabre or grim or what have you, but there's a lot of mythology around this. And there's a number of terms for the Ouroboros, which is the continual renewal of life, uh, infinity. Uh, but to me, it, it is the purposeful reinvention of oneself, the consuming of the old, the shedding of that skin and becoming a new and better version by devouring the old. And so I was sitting there in my you know, late thirties, actually the process started probably in my earlier thirties of thinking about this stuff. And, uh, I'm like, I love leadership. I love being able to be able to take people. And that's what I did is I, I changed, I changed cultures and companies. Yeah. There was business processes I put in place and a lot of like technical stuff. But at the end of the day, people don't realize like everything Everything is accomplished through people. Like people are the jet fuel that's going to propel you forward in life. Your relationships, your personal life, your business life, it doesn't matter where it's at, but it's really important 
that you invest in those people. I'm getting off on a, on a tangent again. Um, really important that you invest in people and the people that matter for for you in your life, and that can that's going to create so much. And so that's that's what I enjoyed about the, the the work that I did. I didn't care about making airplane parts or car parts or whatever it was we were making. It was getting people to achieve more than they thought possible of themselves, having them find that real realization and seeing the impact it had across their entire life as they became more engaged in their work, which led to more engagement in their, their own life, their family, all these sorts of things. And, and that I loved it, but I felt I had so much more to give. Uh, like I said, I, I left out the lifting side of things. Um, but, uh, I, I started lifting around 1988 and early 2000s started create, making my own gym on the side of like running businesses and, and, uh, that was an outlet for my coaching. I ended up, I had like a 9,000 square foot training facility is a, is a side project, <laughs> uh, <laughs> where, because I wanted to be the best lifter that I could possibly be. And, and to do that, I wanted, I, I knew I had to have the right people around me. And so I created that on purpose around me. But in the process, I started meeting a lot of, as I chased, uh, chased human performance, I started building this network of knowing the best people in the world for different pieces of research or knowledge. Uh, you can see it on the advisory board on our website if you want to go take a look. But, you know, they're the best of the best in any discipline. They're personal friends. I, I lecture with them. And it got to the point where I was lecturing with them. And, and, and I really wanted to take this, these messages around movement and, 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 and strength and having that being a healing thing in life and not a positive thing in life and not a detrimental thing. And I, I looked at my life and I said, you know, this is the path that I want to go. This is how I can have the biggest impact on the world that I think I can with my skills and my passion, which is to help people grow and achieve beyond what, what they think possible. And so I, I, I got up and I walked away from this uh, career that I was paid really well at, <laughs> sought after for what I did, very secure to put my entire life savings and everything on the line to start up my own business and uh, became, a, became an entrepreneur. I hate the word entrepreneur, though, but I have to I have four businesses in my portfolio now, so I have to admit that, okay... I technically, <laughs> technically, technically I am, uh, but, <laughs> um, and at the same time, I, ha I had to make a lot of personal choices in my life as well. So we're talking about the, the other side of it. If you're going to, if you're going to invest yourself in people that are going to be, that you truly believe in and are also going to reciprocally help your life, there's a point of, you've got to cut out the individuals that are not that way. And we're not talking about just cutting out people that are not yes people. Like there, you need people in your life that are going to challenge you, but it's for a common purpose. They understand the purpose, the end goal. And it's not just to be a negative draw on energy. 
And so I had to, you know, cut some longstanding relationships. I, one of those was, was my, was, uh, was my wife. Um, and, and so it was a, a really challenging time in my life. I actually walked away from competitive powerlifting, uh, at that time as well, because I, I even reframed from my lifting what I wanted out of my lifting. I wanted to inspire greatness. I wanted to be creative with, uh, hopefully we can get into this discussion around values and stuff here in a little bit, but, uh, uh, with how I express my values in life, uh, into my lifting and also create a platform where I could draw in awareness and money for charitable causes and things that I believe in. And so I became, started doing exhibition lifting and essentially retailered my whole life. So within five years timeframe, luckily I, I, I am remarried. I have a third, uh, third kid now, as I mentioned earlier. And, and I'm just so happy despite all the, you know, the pressures of running multiple businesses, going the startup round, but in five years or less than five years, cause this is a pretty regular thing. We're essentially in every single major professional sport out there dominate, like, uh, the last few years, nine of the ten, uh, or nine of the ten teams that compete in uh, the World Series and MLB, they're customers and clients of ours. For uh, you want to list colleges, every championship team is a customer. We have like five hundred different colleges that we work with. Like I said, huge portion, probably seventy five percent of MLB. We're in the NBA, we're in the NFL, uh, we're in the NHL, uh, Tour de France, Olympic Training Center uses our stuff. Tons of uh, uh, throwing athletes uh, that compete around the world, use our products that we've become an industry standard for what we do in, in the work that we do in, in, in that period of time because of that passion and understanding. And so it's, uh, it's awesome to see like what I hope to, to be a part of and create, uh, coming to coming to fruition. And really that was the impetus of the book is, my my business is all focused on the the physical nature of how to have use strength as a tool to become a better version of yourself and i wanted to help people on the other aspects the mental emotional uh and be able to put some practical tools and lessons in place and give people the questions that they need to ask themselves to truly know what they value in life, how to create goals that are aligned with it and execute a plan that will allow them to live that life. And that's the Ouroboros, the purposeful re reinvention of oneself. I absolutely love that. So you had obviously the, the impetus that you have made it by all standards. I think there, you know, I recommend this documentary to a lot of people, but the documentary I am is really fascinating. Uh, it's with the um, the director of Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, Liar Liar, all this stuff. He gets he gets to the top of Hollywood. He's got a thirty three million dollar home. It's the third one he's bought in Beverly Hills, and he realizes he's not happy. So he sets out upon the world to see like what drives happiness, who has the most peace, what are the cultures, the traditions, the people on this planet who actually do have that, and. Uh, I think a lot of people get to a successful point in their life, and they look around and they're like, "What's this all for?" You know, so that that is a great place to start from 
sometimes we don't make significant changes until there's a crisis, but that crisis or rock bottom is different for different people. And that certainly can be the case for a lot of people who have quote unquote made it to then have a review of their life and say, this is not what the fuck I want to do with every day of my life for the rest of my life. Yeah, it's that that is a perfect example I'd love to dig into, actually, Kyle, if you don't mind. Yeah, please do. So <clears throat> we are told so much about what we should want in this world. And it, like I said, it's I, I mentioned the, the the words like curated and cultivated earlier. Uh, it really is like it, we're said we all need to be individuals and and here, here's a here's a great perfume and a great set of clothing that matches your and and and, and it's this individualism is not real. Like it, it, it's all on the exterior. So, like, let's talk about his thirty three million dollar home that he just bought. In the in the that world of I, this is why I hate the word entrepreneur is because there's so much of this push in the entrepreneur world or with these business coaches that are out there in the entrepreneur world saying, you need to go out there, you need to chase so you can get your, your mansion and your, and your fast cars. And, and, and don't be, you know, don't be thinking anything negative of, about those. If you want those things, there's nothing wrong with it. And I agree, there is nothing wrong with that. There's no morality. There should be no morality attached to you know, what our individual desires in life are. And, and I, I definitely walk that line in my book by teaching people that to, to ask the right questions to get there, but not actually define what you want. And you, what you've got to start with, and this is why I brought up the $33 million mansion, is <clears throat> your, it sounds silly, but your why, your really fundamental understanding of your values in life. And this is a hard, hard thing for some people to get to. But you can't just start jumping to the end goals. I want a mansion. I want this. Uh, the whole bucket list thing. There's another approach. People are looking, you know, what about the Joneses? Well, the people around me have this. I need this. I need that. And the question is, why do you want those things? Why do you want those? Because... Understanding that you'll get to what are the underlying values in your life. And you've got to start there before you start looking at goals because they can be really detrimental. So <clears throat> I'll use a couple things uh, that would be goals that would drive me to wanting a mansion, potentially. That would be I love accomplishment, I love recognition, like being respected and known for the the good work that I've done. I love, like I said, the accomplishment side of things. Those are some of my values. Now I've got some other ones as well. There's about like seven core values that I have. And uh, those could definitely be expressed through having these really fine, wonderful things. But what about, what if it's another value? Uh, one of mine happens to be security, which is a really heavy one for me. And something that kind of held me back from a long time to, from taking the step into this, the the unknown like I did a few years ago. Um, but again, I've got accomplishment kind of rolling against me uh, as well, pushing against me on the other side. But if security was my main driver, I could also say, I want a mansion 
and I want a fancy car out front or garage full of fancy cars, whatever you want. Anyway, because once I've got those things, then I, my, my, my underlying subconscious would, you know, maybe knows that, ah, if I've achieved that, I'm definitely at a secure place in my life. I'm going to be able to take care of myself. I'm going to be able to take care of my family and maybe my family, like create something that's long lasting for my family as well. But if I don't know that value, I could over leverage myself and stretch myself because my goal is to have that mansion. So I put everything on the line and get stretched to the absolute minimum, get that mansion. And what have I done? I've created the exact environment opposite of what my underlying value is. I'm stressed out. I'm insecure all the time because I'm worried about being able to pay the bills and I put it to the absolute minimum. I've got no wiggle room. And that is the, that is the quintessential, you know, storyline of demonstrating why knowing your values first work. So just like knowing my values around being able to want people to succeed and the, you know, the, basically the coaching side of that, that's how I was able to express that and enjoy the work that I did before. But there's other ways to express that same, that, that same thing. And if we, if we understand that when you create this life vision or whatever it is that you've got, you may say, Hey, I want to be a, I want to be an actor. Well, why do you want to be an actor? You may end up finding if I understood my values, there's actually several different ways that I actually could live my life and achieve and live those values without going down the actor path. If I find that one, I, I suck as an actor <laughs> and I'm just never going to make it <laughs> or it's highly freaking competitive. I've been in, living in LA trying to bust it for 20 years and you know, I, I still don't have it moving and it's like, well, that's my only plan. So I guess I'm going to live life, you know, failing. Well, there's other avenues. And you'll never know what those other avenues are unless you ask those questions and dig really, really deep. And it's not an easy process. It sounds, you know, like, you know, like very theoretical. I can just get in there and hammer that out. But pulling back layer after layer after layer to really understand what is driving you is an incredibly essential task. And it's a hard task but it's going to really make a big difference on your life if you can do it. Because from there, now you can start establishing goals that will realize those values. And that creates a laser-like focus in your life to ability to create and accomplish so much. Because now you know, what can I cut out? What do I not have to do? What do I not have to chase? What shiny thing entering my you know, my vision that I could go down a path chasing for a couple of years has no value to my long-term vision and plan. This creates a life that people go, how the hell are you able to accomplish and move forward so much things? And it's, you're not doing more. You're not, no one's got more than 24 hours in a day. This is how you create that environment and that type of success with this, you know, laser focus with towards living the way that you want to live. I love it, brother. That's beautifully stated. Um, <clears throat> talk a little bit about how you came to understand, like, where was the, uh, I know you've had uh, a lot of time in nature. You've had 
a reflective mind. You talked a bit about the conversations that your parents and step-parents and friends would have around politics and religion and spirituality. It, I guess, what, what was the impetus? Was it just hard shit coming up in life or was there a meditation practice or exposure to plant medicines? I mean, is there anything that, that got you to a point where you've really started to dive into what are the values? What, why does the why matter? You know, like that's, it's not something that most people just stumble upon. And I don't, obviously I hadn't made it to the second half of your book yet, but I just wonder if there was something that, that occurred that was really the driving force for you to take a hard look within. Yeah. That's, that's a good question. And I think there are definitely some things when I, you know, think back now on my life. So one of the things, my father was a Buddhist and he had gone and spent, I think a couple years in the monasteries, you know, in the mountains in Tibet, like he was a hardcore Buddhist (laughs) and he came back and he was always involved. And when I would go to visit him, you know, we would go out to meditation sessions. So I, at a very early age, I had a lot of experience spending time, you know, in my mind, uh, being able to learn meditation practices from, from some skilled people on the Eastern medicine side, or I wouldn't say Eastern medicine, but Eastern philosophy. And I think that definitely uh, helped that as well as also just the massive amount of time reading and being separated from technology. (laughs) Sounds silly. My wife loves to laugh at me because I have these huge gaps of like, in my people like, oh, what about these movies? I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. They're like, everybody's seen that. You were alive then. I'm like, yeah, that was in a 10-year block that I had no exposure whatsoever to anything that was going on in the world. (laughs) So I, I, I think that environment, uh, help lead to those things. And it definitely, there's, I, I, I've always been drawn to, I'm a perfectionist. Like I always believe that we can be better. And this is a, a statement that just resounds through our organization because I say it all the time, which is there is always more. And this is a framework of how we look at everything. So something I've ingrained in my organizations is we know we want to, we want to find this like North star direction that we're heading with any project or the company. And we're always taking a step towards it, but you can never actually get there. So it's, it's this process type mentality that, we're trying to find perfection. We know that we're never going to find it, but everything that we do, we're constantly trying to push to be better and to be a little closer to it. And these are things I just picked up through the years. Actually, a lot of philosophical type stuff is um, in in this range. And the same thing, like uh, there's Simon Sinek's book about uh, uh, the wise. I can't remember the title of the book right now. My business partners read it, but I was doing this about 20 years ago, late 90s, because this was a Japanese philosophy that I'd integrated into my my leadership to, uh, disciplines from that the industrial side. So I did a lot of research and understanding of some different philosophy, philosophy but it was related to like industry. But I, I, I started thinking about life that way. And that one was the five whys. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it was a process for understanding root is like understanding root cause problems in a systematic fashion. And so it's always it's funny, but like I literally my many of my philosophies in life are pulled from this industrial sector. Um, but a lot of it is Japanese based uh, or themed philosophy because it it came out of uh, Japan in the post war uh, 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 post war period as they really ramped up their manufacturing and figured out the things that that worked. And again, that continuous improvement mindset, all of that, like really just fits well in my life. And I, I use that as a framework for business, but I was using it as a framework for how I managed people and how I managed cultures. And I started seeing this huge impact. I mean, I took this aerospace company, for example, I came in, it was about ready to shutter its doors. It was going to lose its contract with Boeing. They were going to go bankrupt. You know, 150 people were going to lose their jobs, plus all the people that the the subcontractors that we worked worked for us as well. They were the worst performer as far as quality and delivery. Maybe not the worst, but they were they they were not ex- at acceptable rates. So abysmal quality and delivery um, and financials. They weren't making money, which makes Boeing worried. And so that's what they were going to lose the contract for. And so I went to work and it was about changing the culture. And just by changing the culture, in a matter of three years, the company was the number one performer in the world to Boeing Corporation for quality and delivery and was financially profitable. And that's seeing that type of stuff and being immersed in it and seeing how it changes people, I started using uh, as as kind of coaching philosophies with the people, the the leaders, the other leaders from different organizations that I mentored and things of that nature, and started putting in place in my life through the years. That's a prime example of seeing what that can do to change a huge amount of people and deliver results that impacted their life. Yeah, that's incredible. What do, is that? Where you got Kabuki from? <laughs> it it uh, it it is. In a sense, um, <laughs> that's a totally random story of how it got get started, uh, which was just a college nickname because there there used to be this wrestler named the Great Kabuki, and I used to be a pretty good wrestler in high school. People in college knew that, and he would drink this green stuff and spit it out. And uh, I, I might have drank in you know uh, green enhanced uh, alcoholic beverages a time or two in college and. Uh, that's where the nickname came from. But then I started putting it in place and, and that's what really stuck because like we call the, we've got the, the Kabuki is a mask, right? It's a mask that we put on. Well, it's for theater, but you can also tie, if you do enough research, you'll find that it's also tied to, you know, putting the, the, the samurai mask on before going to, to, to battle. And if you start looking in a lot of different religions, or not religions, uh, um, ethnic backgrounds, social backgrounds, going way back, you'll see when people went to war, there was always, in all of these, and we see it today in sports, like just the putting a face paint on and things like that. Um, but it's this either a mask or painting of the face or these dancing rituals. And it's all this preparation for, you know, this normal person that is... Uh, you know, a father, a member of a tribe, uh, 
just this individual now has to go to battle and do these things that are atrocious, do these things that are outside of their norm to be able to protect, again, their family, their tribe, their community. And so they've got to become somebody that they're not in this process. And so we've got the kabuki mask, and it's actually a rendition of my face in a squat. So we call it our squat face. And it's all about, we'll provide you the tools and the methodology, but you got to bring that third factor, which is your game day face, the mental side of it. We can't give that to you. I can write about it. I can speak about it. But at the end of the day, the person that's bringing that to the table is you. And that's the trifecta that's going to bring change. The right tools, the right methodology, and that mental aspect. So we call it get your squat face on. But it's get your game day face on. It's, you know, become that other version of yourself to step up and do a performance or go to battle or any of these sorts of things. And and I think that just really stuck well with me. And so we've, we've kept that as the cornerstone and created the business uh, name around that, but it was totally random uh, uh, where the name came from to start with. Honestly. I love that. Absolutely. Love that. Uh, Talk a bit about how strength, you know, getting, I know what drew you to strength is something that's drawn me to strength. And a lot of other people is this this knowing that as I build myself and make myself stronger, that this starts to leach out into all areas of my life in all aspects from mental, emotional to even the spiritual. Cause I don't think many people have that understanding when they look at somebody with a larger frame or, you know, no, they almost think the much- opposite. They almost think yeah. the opposite. Right. And I'm definitely yeah. following that stat- that stereotype category. And I love breaking it. Cause it's like, I just, yesterday I had somebody, that has no clue some you know young 20 year old on my instagram like making some comments basically along the lines that i was uh, not intelligent i'm like <laughs> just makes me laugh because like okay he's like yeah you the mad scientist i'm like oh thank you did you google chris Duffin <laughs> scientific <laughs> achievement award and find the the awards i've got like that's that's cool man thank you <laughs> but um we don't we don't, you know, what I talked about identity and how stress really kind of defines and creates that. But at the same time, you don't know what it is. You don't know who you are as a person, except when you're testing yourself. And I'm giving that a bit of a pause to sink in because that is, you could have been a hero or done amazing things 20 years ago. But if you haven't been in the practice, just like if you haven't been in the gym, you're going to get soft. And when you go to test yourself, you're going to find out I'm soft. Soft can be a lot of things, but it's getting in. Let's say CrossFit. You're getting in and doing a wad. You got a time. That could be time means nothing. Did I give it my all? Did I really push myself? No one knows, but you know, deep down in your heart where you fell out. Did you, and, 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 and that really tells you who am I right now today in this world? We never know unless we're in that process of testing ourselves. And that's, that's what I love about that. And what has always kept me drawn to it is, is just something inexplicable 
about that feeling and sensation. And, it, and you know what? It, in every workout you, you do know, there is always more. And that's what keeps driving you back again and again, right? Um, so it's a, it's a process of self-discovery in a means. And yeah, it is tied a hundred percent to those other aspects. I mean, uh, this, this dates back, you know, to early Greek philosophy with, uh, with Socrates, a lot of people kind of miss like in, in this, in today's world, like it, it's really anybody that's a bigger person. And this is, there's research backing this, um, is thought to be less intelligent when I think that you've got to be strong in all these aspects. And you really can't unless you're testing all those areas and trying to push all those areas forward. And But strength, again, is relative. It doesn't mean that you need to be big and strong. Like whatever your physical culture side is, it could be endurance running. I don't care. Test yourself. Find yourself. And... That's that's a lot more than physical in nature. Yeah, and no people doubt about aren't going to get it unless they go do it. <laughs> yeah, you don't get it sitting on the sidelines. No doubt about you that. Do, you don't. No, you got to be the one that steps up to the plate and uh, and discover it. And I, 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 you know, I don't have any magical words to try to explain it to nobody that somebody else that hasn't, you know, had that that deep attachment to physical culture in their life and seeing how it sways both your spiritual nature that, and there's tons of research t- showing uh, the impacts on mental and emotional well-being, like massive amount uh, around that. Actually one of the, it, it can be tied to the crisis and that we're seeing in the world today around uh, mental well-being uh, is due to this lack of physical culture in our life. And it's, it's kind of interesting seeing because there's so many people that are really highly involved if in your if you're in your community and you kind of just watch it you think it's the biggest thing and everything everybody does it but it, it's a it's a dichotomy in the world today where people are going towards extremes like there's so much information out there on fitness that was never available you can do things now that people never realized were possible and people are pushing those extremes and accomplishing it but then we still have this vast majority of the population is getting really unhealthy. Body weights are climbing, heart disease and cancer are going up, uh, diabetes is going up, and mental health and it, it, it is on the on the decline, tied exactly to it. Yeah, I think about that a lot. My buddy Aaron Alexander just uh, he finished a really good book that talked, you know, it even broke down the science of posture, and I know that's something that um, you know Jordan Peterson's talked about before, but. There are things we can do that that really do not only make us feel better in the moment, but make us feel better long term. And there are things that really expand and open up the body and help us get stronger in those postures. And a lot of that comes with training under load. And I mm-hmm. don't know that there's many good replacements for that. There isn't. It, com- it comes down to the basic human thing. You have to have stress to get a- adaptation. So the people that want to, you know, you know, promote these low stress environments for, you know, seeing success, it fundamentally doesn't work. Like we have to have load, some sort of intensity that is going to challenge you. Without that, we do not see adaptation. I love it, brother. 
Well, where can people find you uh, online and uh, where can people get your book? Well, the, uh, the book is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Uh, you can get it on Audible as well. Uh, paperback, ebook, hardcover, any of those. You can get the hardcover on our site. On if you order from Kabuki Strength, it's a signed hardcover. But I don't, I don't care. Get it wherever you want to want to go. Uh, there is an option that allows you to get it for free uh, via my my personal website, ChristopherDuffin.com, C H R I S T O P H E R D U F F I N. Um, if you sign up for a, a new Audible uh, membership, then you'll get my book and another book for free. Kind of cool. Um, but again, whatever you want to do, there's links to my my websites there. So Kabuki Strength is that's our strength training. Very unique, novel items that improve biomechanics under load. We reduce injury rates uh, while increasing the training effect. And so that's uh, KabukiStrength.com. Uh, Barefoot Athletics is a human-to-ground interface, so shoes, minimalist uh, shoes and and toe socks and things of those nature to to really improve foot mechanics, uh, which is a, a really misunderstood and important topic. And then uh, uh, Build Fast Formulas, Performance Supplements. So those are, you can find it all on ChristopherDuffin.com. Um, uh, social media, the two places I really interact at are Instagram and LinkedIn. If you just type in Chris Duffin, I'm sure I'll pop up. But uh, my LinkedIn uh, 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 handle is mad underscore scientist underscore Duffin. So those are all great ways to, to get a hold of me and uh, you can follow along. So what I'm doing right now, Kyle, we didn't talk about this, but uh, <clears throat> I, I set this plan. We got like three minutes. Yeah. No, no. Go for okay. it. Brother. So I set this plan in place. Four years ago, when I exited competitive powerlifting, I said, I want to do what I want to do. And I'm going to chase some crazy ass goals. And the primary, I, I, I made a list of them, but the big one was to be the first person in the world, only person in the world, to squat and deadlift a thousand pounds for reps, let alone nobody's done both singularly. So there's people that specialize in one or the other, about five or six on each side that have done it, but nobody has been able to do both. And uh, so I did the deadlift. I did uh, a thousand pounds, thousand one pounds for almost three reps uh, three years ago. It's still the standing Guinness World Record for the most weight ever sumo deadlifted. And this March in San Diego, March 19th at the uh, San Diego Convention Center, I will be squatting a thousand pounds, planning somewhere between three to five repetitions to, to finalize this. I call it grand goals. Uh, a little play on word words, but uh, it, it's chasing these big, gnarly, scary things in your life that excite you. And uh, so this is a, a great way that grand has dual meaning. So that and the thousand pound load. Uh, so this is, uh, uh, you know, that's part of the inspiration side of things of trying to do it. It's also a huge learning experience for me. Every time I do this, I advance my knowledge on pulling together like all the the research and different ideas and things with the, you know, this elite uh, group of uh, researchers that I work with and really putting it into practice in an environment where I have to figure it out and the body is not under such an incredible amount of stress. 
that uh, that I I learn it really fast what works what doesn't how to how to modify it those sorts of things and that's where a lot of our philosophy comes out of is those moments like that and what what happens in the real world and this time our charity is the leukemia and lymphoma society so my business partner his grandson uh, had to battle that last year and so he his grandson is trying to raise fifty thousand dollars for the leukemia and lymphoma society so on the Kabuki Strength website, you can buy the Grand Goals shirts. A hundred percent of proceeds are going towards the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and you can also just donate directly. I think on that same uh, that same that same page as well. So uh, the process is being documented and thrown up on my social media channels. So the, you know each week's lifting and all that stuff. If you want to follow on social media, it's there. Uh, and there is a feature-length documentary being filmed on the whole process that'll probably come out next year. That's fucking incredible! Definitely happy we we went three minutes over. That's that's. <laughs> I always forget I just, to talk about the lifting stuff. I don't know why, because I'm like, it it, it is like, uh, it, 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 it I don't know. I just never think it's that impressive, and then I'm like, oh yeah, that is what I do, and nobody else does it. So. <laughs> Yeah, damn impressive. I mean, I just worked my way back to to using three fifteen for reps on on back squats. So I'm, I'm getting working my way up to to a five hundred pound squat, and definitely just for a single, I'll be happy with that. But that's that's beautiful work, brother. It's uh it's exciting to watch you and follow you, and uh, I'd love to learn more from you. I'd love to have you out here on it for a seminar down the road. Yeah, let's uh let's plan on making that happen. I I've talked with the folks at on it through the years, and. Uh, I've just never, it's never come up time, timing wise. So, uh, well, we can make yeah. that happen for sure. Okay. Chris, thank you so much, brother. Thank you for joining us. And we'll link to all that in the show notes for everybody. So you don't have to write it down. And, uh, yeah, man, we'll be watching. We'll be watching in, uh, March. Thank you, sir. Much appreciate the time today. All righty. Have a good one, brother. All right. Bye. Thank you guys for listening to today's show with my dude. Chris Duffin, be on the lookout. You can follow him online March 19th to see him set this incredible record where he plans to do multiple reps with 1,000 pounds on squat. He's already done multiple reps with 1,000 pounds on deadlift, and he will become the first human, no doubt, ever in recorded history to do both. Pretty exceptional guy. Uh, Check his book out. We'll link to it in the show notes from Amazon, and uh, we'll see you next week.